Well, let's pray. Well, Father, that is our heart. We know that we are a sent people who are on mission to go to all the world. We know that this is a, a corporate endeavor, something that we do together, and I pray that this uh, message will help us to know all of our part in this effort. Pray that your word will speak clearly to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this uh, past week took a big step. We've been working on a job description for our, what is the uh, the pastor of biblical counseling and discipleship, and I kind of launched the missiles and sent it out, and so you can pray for us as we are actively looking for the Lord to bring someone into the flock who can minister to us in that way. Now, the reason why we have a job description is so that we can attract the right candidate, so that we can uh, evaluate or the candidate can evaluate if he's a right fit, and even to give him direction once he's here and and know how he is to be uh, evaluated when the time comes. Now, it got me thinking about my job description, okay? Not that I'm looking to be replaced or go anyplace else. Don't worry. This is all for sermon purposes here. But if you were to write my job description or if you were to look at a job description of a, of a senior pastor at various churches, what, what would you find? Well, some churches would look for a senior pastor who acts like a CEO, He knows how to manage an organization, how to develop five and ten year plans to really get the the church community moving forward. Uh, Others might look for a chaplain, you know, the guy who does the stuff that nobody else wants to do, like marry and bury people and preach every week, Uh, when necessary, go to all the, you know, visit the hospital, attend all the high school football games really be a part of the community as the the chaplain. Another church might want a cultural commentator, perhaps a sociologist or political pundit who spends his Sundays giving expositions of current events. So what is my job description? What does the Lord expect me to do? I think the clearest articulation of it is found in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, where Paul tells Timothy, and keep in mind, this whole letter is written to Paul's successor, uh, someone who's going to take over for his ministry. And he's kind of in the final turn where the altitude is dropping and he's about to land the plane and he's giving final exhortations for his final letter that he's given to Timothy. Paul will be martyred soon, and he tells Timothy to do the following. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. If you want to know what to expect out of your pastor, out of me, this is where you begin. And it's really interesting because this follows on the heels of an articulation of a high view of the Scriptures. 
Remember, this church does not belong to me, doesn't belong to you. Who does this church ultimately belong to? It's the Lord's church. And the Lord has expectations for how his church is to be run, and he communicates his will and his expectations through the scriptures. As he just stated, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so every preacher is under this divine authority where we understand that this church does not belong to us, it belongs to the Lord, and he has spoken his will through the scriptures. Okay, that's, that's one pressure point. But there is another tension, a pressure point, that kind of starts to pull at the pastor. And that is the pressure that comes from the world, which Paul alludes to in verse 3. For the time is coming. When people will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so he is to hold the line. He is to answer to the Lord in the midst of a culture where the expectation is you do what the people say. Right? And we can all understand this. Like, I would not be a preacher without an audience. If you all didn't show up, I'd be just preaching to my family. What fun is that, right? I would not be freed up to preach were not for your generosity and your gifts, right? And so there is a symbiotic relationship between the preacher and the congregation. And as I thought about how to preach this, I mean, this would be one sermon to preach at a seminary graduation, but we're not at a seminary, and no one's graduating from seminary. So why is it that in the semi-public letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, he's telling Timothy in front of this audience that he needs to preach the word? And part of it is a congregation needs to know what to expect out of their pastor. The congregation needs to know what to expect out of their pastor. I know one very large church uh, that is well attended, one of the largest churches in the area, and many true earnest Christians go there. But the pastor, through a series of sermons, began to show his hand, and he was teaching heresy, undermining the authority of the Bible. And I remember talking to many friends who pastored in the shadow of this church, and he said that many in the church who were true Christians didn't know enough about what the Bible taught about the role of a preacher to know that you should leave if your pastor is teaching heresy. Do you see that? I mean, there's many, many Christians who make a tragic mistake of sitting under an unfaithful preacher because that's the church they've always gone to. They don't know enough that when the preacher is not faithful, he will not lead you into greater fidelity. And someday you all might leave, find a new church, and you want to find one where there will be a faithful preacher who submits to the word, right? That's, that's one reason why everyone needs to know this. But there's another reason as well. Well, while many churches might say they expect the pastor to preach the word, they actually have other expectations. I was talking to a 
a pastor friend of mine, and, and he was lamenting that his church, in his words, didn't do anything. He had to not only preach and teach every week, his wife organized the children's ministry. His family basically ran the music team. He mowed the lawn. He cleaned the bathrooms. He did everything. Now, two weeks after I had this conversation, I ran into somebody who attended this church, and I, I just asked him, so what church do you go to? Oh, you go to that church. Okay, I, I know the pastor there. He's, he's a friend of mine. What do you like about that church? And this guy said, oh, I love the pastor. Well, great. What, what do you love about the pastor? He's a real servant. He's a real servant. And it's almost as if he said, he's my servant. Do you see the problem? There was an expectation that the pastor did all of these other things, but there wasn't an expectation that he could free his time to adequately preach the word. Now, I do not have an axe to grind, just so you know. There is no indictment that is coming to you all that you need to give me more time to study. You all are very much in alignment that I need to be free to preach the word. But even, even so, it is helpful to know scripturally, why should you have that expectation? And it's good for me to know this too, right? Of all the stuff I could be doing, right? And, and granted, when you love people, right? You want you know, going to the hospital, doing the leadership, doing all these things. All that stuff is really important, right? And I don't want to diminish any pastor who does those things, but it cannot be done at the expense of the primary responsibility of the pastor, which is to preach the word. Because frankly, preaching the word is shepherding. Teaching people the truth of the word of God is shepherding. That is the most important activity that the pastor can do is to equip you guys for the work of the ministry by preaching the word. So how does a pastor move to this point? How does he even develop this conviction? Well, Paul appeals to Timothy and really appeals to all pastors that they must do two things to become a faithful pastor, a faithful preacher. The first one is you got to feel the weight. you got to feel the weight. And then secondly, you fulfill the call. A faithful preacher feels the weight of what they're doing, and then from that, he fulfills the call. So we'll look at the first point. Feel the weight. Now, Paul is not messing around with Timothy. He doesn't just say, preach the word. There's a little preamble here. I, Paul, charge you. I charge you. Now, the fact that Paul is a spiritual father to Timothy, that carries a lot of weight. Anytime you charge anyone, he presumes upon his personal authority, I, Paul, charge you, Timothy. But he doesn't stop there. In the presence of God. Now that's extra weighty. Not only is Paul charging him as a spiritual son, he's charging in the presence of God, but that's not all. And of Christ Jesus, all of a sudden he's appealed to two witnesses, according to Hebrew custom. And it's not Barnabas and Titus. He chooses the two most important people in the universe, God and Christ Jesus. But that's not all. 
who is to judge the living and the dead? Now, judging the living and the dead is a very important job, isn't it? Judging the living and the dead means that every single soul will be judged by Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are dead or alive. If you look at the entire cumulative human population, it can be broken down into two categories. Those who are dead and those who are living, and Jesus judges them both. So, we've already established, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to love the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. When will he judge the living and the dead? There will be a glorious moment in the future where the skies will roll back like a scroll and the Lord, trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend and Jesus will be here on earth in his glory and ordering the entire world under his rule. And at that moment, there will be something wonderful that takes place. According to Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul, talking about the humility of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There'll come a day where the living and dead and the dead, all of them will be resurrected if necessary. They'll stand before Jesus. And some of them will not want to confess him as Lord. But Jesus is going to say, try again. Some of them will not want to bow the knee, but some angels will get behind them and push them to the ground and say, now, say it. And some will reluctantly say it, Jesus is Lord, and then be consigned to the eternal lake of fire. But that's not the case for everyone. For some, that's going to be a really good day. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, all this to say, Paul wants Timothy to feel the weight. And to feel the weight... He presents Jesus as the judge, right? Even in our own legal system, uh, there's a weightiness to the judge as part of the ceremony, right? If there's a defendant in court, he's sitting down and they're all waiting, they'll be talking and then the bailiff will come in and say, all rise, everybody shuts up and they all stand in respect. The judge walks in wearing his legal garments and then he sits down, he makes himself comfortable, you know, on his table. Then he nods to the bailiff, and bailiff says, please be seated. And that defendant is spoken when spoken to. And the idea is that defendant can't stand up and just say, who are you to judge me? Shut up, son, I'm the judge. I'm in charge here. Okay? So isn't it interesting how the motivation for Timothy is rooted in God the Father and Jesus Christ, the judge, the judge. And it's really to help him to feel the weight. And there's three ways this does this. Number one, Timothy is to preach in light of his own judgment. 
Timothy is to preach in light of his own judgment. One of, I wouldn't say least favorite, but most sobering passages in Scripture for me is James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. When we all stand before the Lord, the Lord will evaluate you with this tablet and these rules over here. Oh, Dave, okay, you get this and you also get this as well. There's a strictness to his judgment. There's a higher standard for me. Because I am speaking on behalf of the Lord. And frankly, every pastor needs to know, every preacher needs to know that what we say has a profound effect because we speak on behalf of the Lord. If I were to go come up here and just tell everyone in this room that if you send the kids to public school, you are in sin. If I were to bind your conscience to something that's not found in Scripture, what would that lead you to do? How would that lead you to see God? If I were to come up here and say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, Love is love. Love whoever you want. Jesus will love you just the way you are, no matter how you live. I would say peace, peace, when there's no peace. What's the impact of that? You see, doctors have a board that they have to answer to if they do something like amputate the wrong leg or drop their cell phone in the open wound <laughs> and stitch it up. I read all kinds of malpractice stories today, and we have great medical professionals. But do you know what I'm saying? They lose their license. And, and sad to say, you know, there are some pastors who have such a following that they can really do whatever they want. They can preach heresy, and the denomination will allow them to do it. But they will never escape the judgment of the Lord for what they have done. There is a weight to preaching. The preacher will answer ultimately to the Lord. But secondly, Timothy is to preach in light of the judgment of the audience. I mean, this is kind of a sobering thought for me. As I, as I look around the room, I know that not everybody in here is saved. Not everybody here knows the Lord. Not everyone in here has been born again. If there was a nuclear strike right now and we were to all die simultaneously at once, I hope most of you go to heaven, but there'll be a significant fraction in this room who will actually go to hell. Some of you are only here because your parents dragged you here, or perhaps a friend invited you, perhaps you're just spiritually curious, you're, not on, that, you're on that path, but you're not there yet. Some of you think you're saved when you're not saved. Right? There is an eternity of heaven and hell that is real. And there is a weightiness that we should have knowing that judgment really takes place. And ultimately, do you know the first doctrine denied in the Bible is judgment? Satan tells Eve when she says, we can eat of any tree of the garden except for this one, otherwise we will die. And Satan says, you will surely not die. Judgment is something that people are uncomfortable with because of the weight but Timothy is to remember the weight of judgment, not only for himself, but for everyone else. But judgment is also 
an opportunity for the faithful. Where Timothy is to seek the reward to come, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we stand before the Lord for judgment, a lot of it is going to be the degree to which he will reward us. It's kind of like going to a performance evaluation when your boss gives you the heads up, you're going to really like what's going to be said. And this was something that Paul was actually looking forward to. A few verses later in 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who loved his appearing. Right? There's a crown of righteousness waiting for us. Judgment leads to good things. He also says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Uh, I hope it's well done and good and faithful servant. Right, that would be the most meaningful compliment that any of us will have for all of eternity for, is for Jesus to look at you and say, well done, you did well. You are a good and faithful servant. So judgment is the opportunity as well. So you see, there is a weight that we feel as we should because this church does not belong to us. This is a church that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he communicates what he wants for this church with the scriptures. And so naturally, we want to treat his church the way he wants it to be treated. Now, that is something that you have to, as a pastor, remind yourself over and over again, because as I'm preaching, I don't see Jesus. I know he's watching. I know he is considering but I don't see Jesus, but who do I see? I see you. And there is a temptation for any preacher to preach to please his audience. To say those things that his audience will approve of so that they will approve of him so that they'll continue to pay his salary and he can keep his preaching position. In fact, there was a survey done in 2019 that said 64% of all pastors feel limited by their church membership in their capacity to speak out on social, uh, on social and moral topics. So 64% of all pastors feel like there would be significant resistance from their congregation if they spoke out on moral and social topics. And 69% of them said they feel pressure from their congregation to speak out on these issues. And what are these social and moral topics he's talking about? Well, the top four are homosexuality, gay marriage, abortion, and sexual morality. They don't feel, two-thirds of pastors don't feel like they can speak out on that topic because it will be met with significant resistance. You see, Paul understood this. He understood that Timothy in the next three verses, which we'll get to next week, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There will always be opposition to faithful teaching. And so what keeps you going as a pastor? And that is to have a high view of God. I look at three men. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the Apostle Paul. Now, all three of these men have something in common. Number one, they began their ministry with a glorious vision of God. They saw the Lord in a very real sense. They were terrified. They were trembling. And they had a permanent vision of God as great and glorious. Now, the second thing that they had in common is all of them had profoundly suffered in their ministry. It's not a coincidence, right? As they are staring down their enemies and the opposition, as the crowd is getting visibly angry and upset, they're looking at the crowd, but they're remembering the glorious vision of Christ. And that is what's sustaining them in their ministry. A faithful pastor, to be faithful, has to feel the weight. He has to understand that ultimately he answers to the Lord, not the audience. That his task is not to comfort the audience with their message that they want to hear, but to affirm the Lord by preaching what he wants to have said. Okay, that is the preface. You feel the weight. And then you fulfill the call. Verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now the primary command is to do what it is to preach. It is to herald. In that day in the Roman Empire, they'd send out a herald that would announce uh, some bit of news. Right? There was a royal birth. Or the emperor will appear, appear here at this time. He was given a message and he was to transmit the message to the emperor's people. And so in this case... The job of the preacher is to preach, it is to herald. And what is he to herald? But the word. Not just a word, but the word. So naturally you ask, what's meant by the word? Well, at a minimum, it speaks of the gospel. In Romans 10, 14, in the context of preaching the word, the necessity of preaching the word, we read this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? For the gospel to be embraced, it has to be articulated, and it has to be preached. And so what is the content of the word? Well, it's the gospel. And what is, what is the gospel? Well, the clearest articulation of the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul tells the church, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, sound familiar, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, when you look at this, you see that the gospel is more than just the plan of salvation. 
right? A lot of times we look at the gospel and it's how to be saved, right? Follow the Romans road. But there is a, a broader view to the gospel. In its simplest expression, Paul says in Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? So part of the gospel articulation is Jesus is Lord. But you go through this passage, you see that one is anchored in the scriptures. In preaching the scriptures, the gospel is being preached. Secondly, you see that Jesus lived, he died, and rose again. And when he died, he died for your sins. He took the righteous wrath of God upon himself. He took your punishment upon himself on the cross. And then God raised him from the dead to save you. Save you from what? Well, save you from eternal condemnation. Save you from the power of death. You will live again. And secondly, to save you from your sin. I mean, so often I talk to young people and old people who, who are imprisoned by their own sin. It might be pornography. It might be alcohol. You name it. It might be a temper. It might be just this profound sense of bitterness that has just soured their entire existence. And the good news of the gospel is you don't have to sin anymore. You can be free. The power of sin is broken, right? That's part of the good news. Jesus is Lord, and you have the freedom now to, to live like it. Part of the gospel is the authority of God, right? When he talks about sin, it's sin defined by who? Defined by God. Breaking the power of sin. And then what's also interesting, he says, and by which you are being saved, that there is, and he also says, um, if you hold fast to the word that I preached. Part of the gospel is persevering in your faith in the gospel. So when I get up and I preach, even if you are saved, what is done here keeps you on the straight and narrow. Right, that is the core. Now at our church, when we preach the gospel, we do so by preaching books of the Bible. When you look at, let's say, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is basically a sermon. 1 Timothy is a sermon. 1 and 2 Corinthians are sermons. Then you have the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. Right? And even when he says, in accordance with the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. When you preach the Old Testament, often you are preaching in, as a prelude to the Gospel. And the point of preaching is that it will touch on some gospel theme, be it the authority of God, the reality of sin, our need for a Savior, the purpose of redemption. And so when you are preaching the word, when I am preaching the word to you, I am preaching the soul-changing truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is what I am called to preach. And sometimes, as I'm preaching, different elements of the gospel will come out depending on the audience. If I'm talking to a Jehovah Witness, for instance, I'll be emphasizing the Lordship of Christ in that He is God. If I'm talking to someone who comes from, let's say, a works-based religious uh, system, I'll talk about how salvation is all of grace, not as a result of works so that no one could boast. If I'm talking to someone who genuinely believes they're a good person because they never killed anyone, then I'm going to take them to certain portions of Scripture that will demonstrate that you are not as good as you think you are. Do you see what I'm saying? 
The gospel is more than three verses in Romans. There's a larger picture to it. And it is to be taught, it is to be instructed. That is the primary command. Now there's some follow-up commands that he gives where he elaborates on how to do this. He says, first of all, be ready in season and out of season. No time is the wrong time to preach the word. There are times of emotional distress where you're still to preach the word. There's times of church conflict you are to preach the word. A good friend of mine went out on his first date with a girl, asked me where to go. I recommended a really nice Italian restaurant in Burbank. Next day, I called him up, followed up, how did it go? Well, it was great. We prayed for our food, and a guy next to us mentioned, huh, haven't seen that before. And during the entire dinner, we had a chance to basically share the gospel with him on their first date. And it wasn't a show, right? I mean, that was out of season. This is his first date. But when there's an opportunity, you go for it. No time is a wrong time to share the gospel. You also see that they're to reprove. This speaks of showing people to be guilty, convicting them, bringing them to a point where they need to change. Rebuke, this is more pointed, where you actually go after somebody by name. This would be like Timothy calling out certain members of the congregation who are leading people to, to heresy, and then to exhort, which is kind of a fatherly way of encouraging, rebuilding, showing them what they should be done. If we were to look at reprove, rebuke, exhort, and put it in the context of a halftime speech, during a high school football game, just so you know I'm on football mode right now, so we're going to get a lot more football analogies. <laughs> Teams down by 14 at halftime, they all go in, and the coach says this. That was the worst half of football I've ever seen in my entire life. You call that football? We got out-hustled, out-maneuvered, out-played. Oh, it's terrible. That's reproving. Indicting the whole team. Then rebuking. Johnny, do you know the playbook, son? Bob, have you forgotten the technique on how to use leverage to block? Specific rebukes. So brothers, sons, it doesn't have to be this way. I know that half was not our football team. Our football team is going to show up in the second half. Because I know that all of you are just as ashamed of your performance as I am, but we are going to make it up for them. If anything, we have lulled them to sleep. And we're going to sneak up, we're going to play the game that we want to play, and we will crush them. That's exhortation. You see, you break down and you build up. And this is in a variety of contexts. Sometimes... I've had to sound the alarm here from the pulpit. Sometimes it might be a private conversation. But it's interesting how it ends with exhortation and the idea of really building up and giving hope. Right? When you believe in the gospel and the power of God to change lives, we always know that it will turn out for good and God will use the word for good to build up his flock and to build up his body. And that's why a preacher is to preach with great patience and instruction. Complete patience and instruction. It takes time for people to grow. 
every spring I buy a couple of tomato plants and I check on those plants every day like today's the day when there's going to be tomatoes and then they show up and they're green and you know how long it takes for a green tomato to turn red it's way too long way too long but you can't rush growth I, I've heard it said by an older wiser pastor do not overestimate what you can do in one year but do not underestimate what you can do in five right you have to play the long game but you keep on preaching the word. That is the engine that drives spiritual growth in the church. And it's not the pastor, right? It's the word, the sword of the spirit that does its work in the hearts of people, but it has to be served continually. Now, sometimes as a pastor, you can fall into what I call mission drift, where you begin to preach things other than the word, where things other than the word can take the primary uh, purpose or it becomes the primary content of the message that you're given i was brainstorming with nate phipps and we came up with with four broad categories politics pragmatics particular issues and personal struggles i'll rename them okay politics pragmatics particular issues and personal struggles now i want to qualify this number one i am guilty of all these okay I preached something like 600 messages here, and if you're to go through my messages, you can find some fouls. Pastor Dave, seems like you're a little bit into personal struggles during that sermon. I know, that's why I'm talking about temptations, I feel it. Secondly, uh, if any of these topics come up, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. I'm saying that this can't drive the sermon. Sometimes addressing these things can help bring home the point of the text and the point of the sermon. Does that make sense? So we'll take these one by one, politics. I think it's safe to say that our culture has a fixation on politics. Right? You can't watch a football game. There you go again, talking about football. Let's put sports in there, Dave. Okay, well, maybe I should. Yeah, without somebody kneeling for the flag and interjecting politics, right? And part of it is there is this profound belief in our culture that the real power comes from politics. After a mass shooting, people send out thoughts and prayers and, and they get chided, right? Because change policy, use politics. We understand that politics has a coercive power where politics can be used to bend people's will to the power of the state. And so there might be a temptation that if we all band together and push a certain policy in place, we can do a lot of good. And incidentally, many liberal churches, that's really what their sermons are all about. When you don't really believe in the gospel or the consequences of sin, what do you preach on? Well, you preach on social change and social action. Now, I think it's good for Christians to be involved in politics. I think a lot of good can be done through politics. But what would happen to this church if I preached on politics every Sunday? Right, what would happen? Secondly, if I'm not preaching, if I'm preaching the word, wait, if I'm preaching politics, what am I not preaching, right? I remember talking to a friend of mine and he told me about his church that yeah, they, they have a heart for the lost, but their goal is to convert lost people into Christians 
so that they'll vote Republican. Right? They're kind of missing it. You see, the pulpit is a place where the word is to be preached. And that will inform your politics. It will inform how you think about the world. But you can't allow politics to replace the preaching of the word. Secondly is pragmatics. The pulpit is a place for you to be life coached. You can live your better life. Yeah, there's a school of ministry that teaches that the purpose of the church service is to get as many unchurched people into the church as possible. And whatever gets people in, if it does get people in, if it get people in the pews, that validates whatever you're teaching on. And so instead of teaching long, boring sermons on two or three verses of scripture, they'll teach on how to affair-proof your marriage, 10 steps for financial freedom, how to overcome fear and anxiety. Now, if you do that, what you win them with is what you have to keep them with, right? It's all about living your best life now. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What happens when they don't get their best life now? What happens when obedience to Jesus will lead to suffering? You see the problem? Now, is it true that the Bible contributes to some sense of human flourishing? You bet. Does it help you become better parents? I think so. Better marriage? You bet. But if you're always drawn to the Bible because it works, and because it works, it must be true, instead of it's true, that's why it works, you're getting the cart before the horse. Okay? There is a practical side of Christian living, but it must be primarily driven by preaching the word. The third is particular issues. They become a hobby horse preacher. There's one doctrine that they go to over and over and over again. You guys might have heard the term cage stage Calvinist. Young man discovers predestination and you should put him in a cage because he's doing so much damage <laughs> to the cause. And so you have a hobby horse preacher who falls in love with predestination. He's preaching through Leviticus. As you can see, there are unclean foods and clean foods. God wants you to choose one and not the other, just like he chooses some and not the other. Well, I thought we were talking about food laws here. I know, but it's there in the text. No, it's not. Do <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And, and, and there's a bunch of hobby horses that people can get into, but it's all about the evils of postmodernism from Psalm 23. I don't know how he got there, but he did. See, the problem is you begin to use the Bible to justify your theology instead of addressing the text as it stands. The fourth, and this is a sneaky one, it's personal struggles. I mean, there are seasons in life when you might be going through a tragedy or some difficulty and a passage of scripture really ministers to you. And if you're not careful, your personal struggles can be projected on the congregation and you think, whatever I'm going through is what everybody else needs to go through every Sunday. And so this, you, you see preaching through the prism of, of your pain. Uh, there's another way that this happens and that is 
the belief that your personal struggles gives you a way of connecting to the congregation. It helps you become more authentic. I remember sitting in on a preacher doing a marriage conference. I was at the marriage conference, and, and he was talking about some personal struggles that he has with his wife, and he shared how often when he gets up to preach, he shares things with the congregation about himself and his own struggles that he had not yet shared with his wife. And he says, when I get up to preach, it's almost like I put on this humility suit, and then when I get down from the pulpit, I take it off. And my wife says, why don't you talk to me about that? Why can't you be that open with me? And he's confessing that he's more open with the congregation than with his wife, with his wife in the room. Kind of awkward. Do you see what I'm saying? See, a lot of times people can just treat this into like a, a therapy session, not just for you, but for the pastor. And everything is mediated by the personality of the pastor and the personal struggle of the pastor. Now, is it wrong to share personal struggles? Uh, when appropriate and when it adorns the text, but it can't drive it. Do you see what I'm saying? See, ultimately, the job of a pastor, the job of a preacher on Sunday morning is this is a time to equip you to honor the Lord with your lives. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. My job is to equip you to live godly lives. To help you see the world as God would have you to see it. To make decisions consistent with the will of God. And that is best done when you understand the word of God. John MacArthur said this about preaching. He said, the preacher is not a chef. He's a waiter. He doesn't want you to make the meal. He wants you to deliver it to the table without messing it up. That's all. So, when you look at what is my job description, what should you expect out of me? It's three words. Preach the word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for the clarity that you have for your church and what you would have us to do. I pray that you'll help me to be a faithful preacher. And I pray that the congregation will long for faithful preaching and that all of us will long to be faithful to you as you are the one who gave us the word to know how to be faithful to you. I pray for anyone here who might be on the outside looking in, that they might be intrigued by the word, intrigued to know more of the truth which we talked about, that you'll just work in their hearts to be part of a community of faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.